Oh my god, I can smell the additives. Welcome to the Creative Riding Motorcycle Podcast, the internet's home for motorcycle mediocrity. Your host. Listen, I can barely tie a shoe, let alone figure out this thing. And isn't that funny how people say not to be an asshole, but they go on to be an asshole? Oh, baby. I don't know. Did it wheelie? I can't tell if he's just revving the motor and being a jerkwad. My skin met the asphalt. But these new new ways kit my... All right. A couple of blurbs. Whatever they do with cocaine. The people who make it happen. The first bike I ever bought was originally hanging from the rafters in his garage. It's a cafe racer with alloy manks, racing tank, and clip-ons, and all that jazz. And the thing's beautiful. I just love the way the Norton sounds. The Soma actually was purchased by uh, the Barber Vintage Motorsports Museum. Right. So that's where she lives now. Oh, man, bro. I was doing 200 miles an hour, and my fingers are coming off the grips. This is in and out of traffic. Um, I got to wheelie through an intersection on that. <laughs> Red. Yeah, it was a little unexpected, but I got some applause from the homeless guy at the bus bus bench. That was pretty fun. I think my dad first gave me my first motorcycle, which was a Kiwi 80, when I was four years old. And the first thing I did was look in the bushes, showing mum how cool it was. Well, um, all right, technically all chaps are assholes, right? Or else yeah, you just do yeah, that's, we decided that you can call anything without an ass on it assless. All season, my bike's been having a problem hopping off the starting line. Like, the back of the bike will hop real bad, and I'll have to let off the gas and get back in it. And I would go to Jesse's and hang out upstairs in the old building at West Coast Shoppers. And he let me sit there and just watch him. Uh, right now, I'm drinking a stone rumination, um, but that's not all I do. Earlier today, I was... <laughs> I was working on a BMW R90. Let's get started. Hey, Grandma. Hey, Grandpa. Welcome back to episode 60 of Creative Writing Motorcycle Podcast. A few things to talk about today. First and foremost, I think we all saw it this week. Eric Buell Racing, EBR, closing his doors again. Uh, I'd like to thank Chris Singsheim for throwing that across my desk. And we're probably going to talk about that. Plus, we're going to talk about, are you a better writer than a racer? We're going to do a little bit of Craigslist ad reading, which I never do. And then we're going to talk babies. What do babies have to do with bikes? Uh, we'll figure that out. Let's get into the show. You know it. I know it. Everybody knows it. Eric Buell Racing shutting down once again. A lot of speculation about what's going on there. Listener of the show, Eric R., a fanatical Buell critic, had zero doubt that this would happen again. Other people totally bummed. And I want to talk about why we should be bummed. Um, Working in the motorcycle industry, well, working in the automotive industry, I'm, I'm privy to some information which I'm not allowed to disclose. It's totally private. And I can't tell you about it. But what I can tell you is that right now, we should be more interested in American sport bike makers or sport bike sport bike makers in general. We should be concerned about the motorcycle industry in general. And I've heard on other uh, shows, so I guess this isn't private, but I've heard a couple other podcasts and radio shows talk about some reports that came out 
Millennials are not buying motorcycles. Millennials are investing in other sorts of things, which, I mean, I guess they're getting their pleasure from, from I don't know, something that's a little safer, uh, something that is a little more socially oriented, even though bikes can be extremely social. But at any rate, yeah, so people, ridership, I guess, is, is going down in younger demographics and younger market segments. And that is troubling both to the industry and to the legacy of riders, I guess. Um, I know if I were a cowboy, I wouldn't understand it if somebody came from the future and told me, listen, man, people don't need horses. People don't ride horses anymore. Horses are like a novelty. They can pretty much go extinct and it's not going to hurt anything. And, um, you know, your lifestyle is gone. We don't use them for anything anymore, let alone cow ranching. But uh, they're an unnecessary creature, to be honest. Uh, I don't think horses provide food for any other species. Um, and I don't think horses, uh, you know, help the environment or whatever. You know what I mean? If anything, they're like cows where they're farting and making methane and whatnot. They're just, they're, they're entertainment at this point. And it's a fact that they were once wild and beautiful and they still are but we just don't need them and they have declined in the quantity or yeah i guess the quantity at which we have them and uh this is what's going to happen to motorcycles really and motorcycles aren't going to be the two-wheeled things that we know now they're gonna you know basically be rolling ipads and, and iphones i believe and I think the Vision Next 100 is a good indicator of that. And I think that the trend in, in the market right now is a good indicator of that. If bike sales really are down, and some of the numbers that you can find out there on the internet that anybody can find that's not private will show you that year over year, the industry has been taking some hits. Obviously, people are focusing you know, Harley Davidson, we we talked about them for like the last 25 episodes, kind of sliding. They were laying a lot of people off. They laid off 200 people and Pol- uh, Polaris had laid off 10 people. And now with Victory closing, I'm not 100% sure how many people Polaris are going to be laying off. But even with outsourcing, you know, Triumph outsourcing a lot of stuff to Thailand, uh, BMW outsourcing stuff to India, they're not necessarily cutting jobs but they're not creating jobs and uh their markets i guess globally they are but i guess what i'm saying is that they're ha- people are having to make stuff cheaper people are having to outsource this stuff and you think of all these jobs lost and you think of all these uh, opportunities lost and you know oh they're trying to get b- bigger profits yada 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 well the thing is is that you can't we don't want the prices of bikes to necessarily keep going up i mean inflation is like a normal thing and it's a necessary thing but if less people are buying them, you know, if, if only one person out there wanted a T-shirt, how much do you think that T-shirt maker would do to cut his prices to make it affordable? Or, you know, he's not going to sell one T-shirt for 500 bucks. I think Ed Hardy tried that back in like the 2000s. And I don't know if he succeeded or not. But my point is, is that we as consumers and riders, we want our bikes to get cheaper. We hate that they're creeping up to the price of a freaking, you know, SUV, you know, if you you want, do I want my Escalade or do I want my, you know, bagger? And even, you know, sporties and stuff like that are staying low, but I don't know if they're staying artificially low. And a lot of the parts aren't even made in the USA, uh, you know, bolts, stamped metal, some, you know, some stuff that you're like, eh, it doesn't matter. But the, the point being is that 
all of this stuff kind of adds together when we make a big ball of yarn or like an onion here. And when we start to unpeel it, the fact that ridership is down and the interest of young people in motorcycling is down or like all these studies that say millennials are, you know, not interested in them. I don't know how many of you started riding when you were in your 20s. Maybe you waited a little longer. And if you were a diehard rider, you know, your family was a you know, motorcycle family, maybe you were in it and maybe that's kind of how it's always been. And when we all had more disposable income, we were all just going crazy on the bikes. And I know that's how it was right before the housing market collapsed in 2008. Everybody, you know, bike sales were just ramping up at this extraordinary rate. And as at my work, I saw it, you know, and, and in the industry, everyone was, was so happy and all these new things were slated, all this great new technology and new bikes and a lot of companies trying to break into the market because there was opportunity. And now, you know, I, I'm not going to say it's due to the housing market crash, but you do have to look at the long term effects of that and how it affects the economy and then how it, fe- how it has affected production of motorcycles and you know, the big, the elephant in the room here that I'm talking about is EBR closing again for like the third time and victory going down and other motorcycle companies barely making it by, you know what I mean? And you think that they have lots of sales numbers, lots of unit sales, they're doing great, but look at the overhead. And then we wonder why, you know, how are we going to make American motorcycles and pay American workers the the what the unions are going to demand and what the prices you know the the, the consumer still wants how are we, how are we going to meet those two make that x cross and put put our pin right there at the middle and not have it like skewed off too far to one side without outsourcing and without you know there's only one way to keep prices down and that's to pay people less to make it as you know in, inflation goes up and all this crazy stuff that you you don't ever want to think about while you're out there riding i mean hell you just Right now, listening to this, it may just make you want to like stick your fingers in your ear, stick a helmet on your head, and go hit the hills. Unfortunately, for those of you that are in the snow or in the very, very, very cold weather, you can't do that. So you're going to have to listen to this. But it's just sad that EBR is closing. And I've said it before, you know, if you really do want an American motorcycle, you're going to have to look towards something like Modus, Boss Haas, you know, all these crazy one-off custom chopper factories, um, you know, the Magpul Ronins and uh, Arch, if I don't know if I just mentioned Arch, but you know, you're going to have to start buying bikes for like 50000 70000 uh, I don't know how half the Harleys are keeping their costs down to the 30000s And I partially know, you know, Harley's been... Harley is one of those things where most of their sales... How, how many shirts do you think Harley sale, sells versus bikes? Um, I think that's what we we need to look at and we need to focus on is going back to the whole millennials and ridership being down... If we're not going to have as many riders, we need to be pumping up like a brand recognition or a lifestyle recognition. And of course, we're going to get some hipsters. We're going to get some passers through. But for us, the core motorcyclists that love riding and that will continue to buy old bikes, look, you know, point our hats toward the new bikes coming out. We want to try everything. We wish, you know, that core motorcycle market is something that it's so crazy that we exist and we kind of like hurt each other in some ways, you know, there's always going to be brand loyalty here and there, but in the end it is kind of no, a no brainer that 
victory had to close if they were going to keep Indian. And uh, uh, there was not a lot of, I think the speculation that they grabbed onto Indian and they always knew they were going to close victory is a bunch of BS because basically victory started way before Indian Indians gone through several owners um, come, you know, in and out of the market over their existence since 1901. And Harley Davidson, for some reason, uh, you know, they didn't, Harley dropped Buell when Buell became, you know, a less profitable thing. Um, and Harley was going through its troubles. They had their own troubles in the 80s. And I don't know. It's just one of these things where we're not thinking right now. We're just like, you think about what's happening right now and kind of forget about what has happened in the past. Right. So I don't know. I, I'm sad that Eric Buell is closing. And I'm sad that victory had to close, but on the same hand, you know, on the backside of that same hand, I guess, is the fact that there's no way to get around this. People come, people go. It's the way the free markets work. Uh, hopefully in the next few years, the economy can, you know, support that. But the economy isn't what's going to save the motorcycle market. The economy is what, you know, we look to when we're trying to see what short-term changes are going to happen in the motorcycle market. What needs to change is we need to get millennials into riding. We need to get, if you love sport bikes, you, you need to get people on sport bikes. And I, lo- I know lo- people love to cruise. I have a coworker and he used to have nothing but sport, you know, sportier bikes. Now he's on a Harley as well. And I think that's part of what's happening is that not the millennials, well, on one, one, hand, we have millennials not getting into it. And maybe they're waiting a little bit longer to get into it. You know what I mean? Now, now that they're probably focusing on maybe school, developing apps, you know, changing the world, all this great stuff. And it really is becoming a side, unfortunately, not a mode of transportation, but like a leisure activity here in the States. And and that's the United States will never carry the motorcycle industry, uh, in my opinion, as a whole through the generations, it'll be the rest of the world that actually relies on it for transportation. So here, here we kind of just tend to focus on what's happening here. The millennials, this blah, 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 the industry, this Harley victory, this blah, 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 blah. But in the big picture worldwide, I don't know what millennials are doing. You know what I mean? So most of this is USA based and the ridership numbers have dropped here. So what that means is that going back to what I said about engagement, we need to get, Younger people engaged, I guess, if we want to, you know, propagate the lifestyle and we want to propagate the industry as a whole. On the other hand, as an industry, we need to look at what the heck is going on. Why are these companies closing? Why is Buell closing? Is it because he really builds crummy bikes? Is it because nobody wants these bikes? Is it because, you know, I don't think that's the problem. And Eric Buell, in an article, in an interview, has shopped this thing around. Is it because of who's in charge? I have no idea. It was it smart to let a liquid asset partner take it over? Who else would take it over? I, I think that just right now, the, the cruiser market and the branding is one thing. And that's exceptional when you look at Harley-Davidson. And now that you look at Indian, if you were to isolate Polaris's sales, Indian has like the the monster share of that, whereas Victory and the Slingshot and whatever else they're considering a Polaris motorcycle or, you know, I don't know what else Polaris makes that they consider a motorcycle. But when you look at those sections of their market, Indian already since acquiring them has like 
become half the company when, as far as like motorsport sales. So, and that's not counting UTVs and, and ATVs and anything else that Polaris owns. I mean, that's just considering their what's branded as a motorcycle, which now they're breaking off you know, drop victory and they're focusing on slingshot. It's funny that those things have had enough of a, a an impact. So either you got to do branding because obviously people aren't buying more Indians because Polaris took them over. So going back to the Buell thing, I don't think it's who owned it. Liquid Asset Partners could have been doing a great job and you could say that you saw the writing on the wall because an, an, a liquidation company owned it, but I don't think that's true you know and you read you read the articles about why it's happening and it's just you know dealers are are, they're having a hard time getting into a dealership and when you're a motorcycle manufacturer that doesn't have your own dealer network it's super hard and even if you're existing go ask somebody that tried to bring you know ktms when they first came over how hard was it to start a ktm deal not a dealership but get into a dealership KTM had to start their own little boutique dealerships. And I knew somebody that has been riding KTM since they were pretty much just dirt bikes. And basically that, you know, that market had to grow itself. And it started a long time ago. I mean, KTM has been making dirt bikes forever. And if you think that they're awesome and great, you're right. And they took, you know, they're they're a success story, but they're still such a small segment of the market. And Harley Davidson, an Indian coming on, you know, Indian is also much less than Harley Davidson. But the fact that that they were taken over by Polaris and all of a sudden they're more than half of of Polaris's motorcycle sales tells you that it's not necessarily millennials. It's not the economy. It's branding. It is dealer networks. And more importantly, it's us, the people that want to ride this stuff. So I implore you, if you love sport bikes, get into sport bikes. If you're older, it's easy to see why sport bike sales are dropping and why cruiser sales are growing. And it's because, you know, going back to the millennial thing, the millennials aren't getting into it. But older guys also don't like to ride hunched over. Older guys that were into sporty bikes a few years ago are finding it more comfortable to get into like a riding lazy chair, you know, an, an easy, easy, easy boy. Let's call it that. So I don't do any uh, copyright or trademark infringement, but you know what I'm saying? It's it's very, you could see why it's important to engage younger people to get branding out there because Harley Davidson, I could tell you they're not making, they're not the company that they are because of the unit sales. They're the company that they are because of shirt sales and licensing deals and everything else that goes along with the brand identity. That's how you get a company that's successful. That writer programs, you know, engagement, all this stuff. So in light of the two American companies that have bitten the dust and eaten a turd recently, I would like you to go out there. And for all you guys looking into sport bikes, um, there's been quite a few people on the show that have uh, told me that they're looking into buying sport bikes. That's great. That's great. All you cruiser guys that are young still, Think about it. Think about getting back into a, like a standard or something that, you know, doesn't keep the wind off you and warm your legs up. Think about getting back to your Spartan roots and getting rough and tumble and going fast again. You know, you don't have to do 80 miles an hour in sixth gear. You can do 80 miles an hour in second gear and have a lot of fun and then do 180 miles an hour in sixth gear. Not to, not to uh, promote irresponsible riding. I'm just saying, you know, there there's a lot of fun to still be had. I know you, you probably... 
you know, we like our cruisers and younger people are getting into Triumphs and Harleys and stuff that are a little bit bigger bikes and not necessarily sporty, you know, more standard and stuff. But I'm just telling you, the, the market, the economy and millennials, you could throw throw your scapegoats under the bus all you want. It's it's us. It's our industry as a whole. And the fact that it's where, how I make my living and get my bread and butter, it worries me. All right. This 20 minute rant is done. Let's move on to the first subject of the show. So there you are, late at night, watching a road racing video of your favorite motorcycle road racer. And by road racer, I don't mean a guy that races on the road. I mean guy who races on the track. Don't ask me why they call it road racing. Simulated road racing. At any rate, getting me off track here. You see him dragging his head on the ground. You see him scraping his knee puck. You think that's awesome. I could never do that, you say. I could never ride like one of those guys. Is that true? Is that true? I'm here to tell you that uh, you're probably better than a road racer. What? Back up the recording? What did he just say? I'm better than a road racer? Yeah. Yeah, I think you are better than a road racer, and I think you know why. I'm going to break down road racers for you. I'm going to break down these chumps that kick ladies when they're riding through the pits, that kick each other off of their bikes, that live in these crazy houses, well, and the guys that are club racers and really nice dudes in your local area. But let's break down some racing stats for you. I know a lot of club racers, and I know a lot of professional road racers that don't actually ride motorcycles what could i possibly be talking about you're asking yourself they don't ride like that makes zero sense i literally just watched them do like cut a couple of hot laps you stupid idiot yes while i may be a stupid idiot i mean they don't ride they're racers they're not riders okay let's let's differentiate here a rider is someone that goes out at every chance they can get rides their motorcycle and while some racers might do that uh, on the track or on a very safe riding facility uh, not a whole heck of a lot of them are pulling that type of stuff off on the actual streets and that's where you come in my friend that's where you are a better rider than a racer now of course there's got to be some sort of caveat and that caveat is is that you're not necessarily a better rider within a certain specific set of parameters, meaning you'll never be able to dodge another bike at 200 miles an hour, and even some racers can't do that, and you're never going to be able to tip your head in and turn, uh, especially on that Harley. You won't be able to grind your helmet on the ground, but you get what I'm saying. We all get that. I know. I'm sorry to tell you that you're not the next Jorge Lorenzo, and if you hate Jorge Lorenzo, then you're still not the next Jorge Lorenzo, but you know, when, when it comes to street riding, there are very few racers that actually ride and case in point, when, you know, Valentino Rossi, um, a couple of the guys I can't even think of get these cool, you know, they win some motorcycles or somebody builds them this crazy cool motorcycle and, uh, you know, the sponsor Yamaha, let's give Rossi a, uh, I don't know, a freaking, uh, V star, you know, or like a giant Royal star venture or something like that as a promotion, yada, yada. That's what it is. It's promotion. You think he's actually going to go cruising around when he's got his Lambo in the garage or his Ferrari. 
that he's going to go cruise around on some big Yamaha cruiser, potentially fall over and uh, break his leg worse than he did a couple of years ago at, uh, I forget the track that he broke his leg, but you know, you get what I'm saying. You get what I'm saying. Who's going to actually ride out on the street? There's cars out there. That could be dangerous riding amongst cars. That could just threaten the potential of my racing career riding amongst all these cars. What do you think? I am crazy. That's why my friend, you listening right now, whoever you are, you are a better rider than Valentino Rossi. You are a better rider than Mark Marquez. That guy won't even, uh, you know, do, he does, has done motocross, but, uh, and if you saw the videos of him taking his bike up a snow hill, that is, you know, very, very uh, low risk. I mean, you could have the bike fall over on you, but you're on snow. So he said ice, but come on, it's snow. At any rate, the, he recently said after his flat track victory at the Super Prestigio why he couldn't pursue a flat track career is because you've got obligations, you've got uh, contracts, and even even road racers that are doing it on a club level, why aren't they going to ride? Well, because they've learned that you go out to a track, there's no left-turning minivans, there are no you know objects to fall off on and hit. It's a great place to practice. It's a super great place to practice and get some new cool skills, learn some new stuff that you can do and not thrash your bike, although it's wise to have a track bike. You can learn trail braking, you can learn you know how to back it in without paying for the the street uh consequence of backing learning to back it in um so yeah there's a lot of different things you can learn at a track i'm not saying that they are not valuable all i'm saying is that you riding on the street you are doing something that a lot of actual racers professional racers in, in uh, particular are not doing and it's because it's dangerous and i you know who even knows if they know who even knows if they know this, the laws, you know, a lot of some of these guys don't even drive and a lot of just like a lot of actors that ride. That's why they stand out from regular actors, because a lot of regular actors don't even have their driver license. A lot of people that live in places like Manhattan and Hoboken and places like that that are, you know, especially even L.A., San Francisco that work, that are actually responsible and use public transportation and are you know, doing that whole thing, that whole gig, they don't even know how to drive a car. So I don't know. Uh, there's something to be said about the fact that you can ride on the street better than probably some of your friends that race or even some professional racers that race. And, uh, uh, that speaks volumes to me. And so that's why even if I've never done an actual track day on a bike, but uh, even if I did, I wouldn't quit riding. And I know that racing can be totally fun. And I'm grateful for all the opportunities and friends that I have that do that sort of thing. But even some of my friends have gone to racing and not stepped back into riding for whatever reason. And some people, uh, when I had Scotty Jones on the show from Noise Cycles, he even said, I forget if I picked it up in the interview, but he said he doesn't have a bike right now. He has... Uh, just race bikes. You know, he doesn't have a daily rider. I'm going to guess that some of your favorite personalities from the old uh, chopper shows and everything probably rode, uh, you know, I'm going to take this bike out on the road and drive it, especially for the cameras and all the production value. But I bet you, aside from like events that they probably didn't ride, and that's where a lot of people that I know and a lot of people that I'm sure that you know, uh, 
they break that mold because you, we ride to get places. We ride for enjoyment. We ride for, uh, to get lunch. You know, some people I know ride 200 miles just to get lunch. Some people I know ride a hundred plus miles, uh, just to get to work and back, you know, around trip. So I don't know. Um, you talk about somebody that rides a hundred miles on the test track and then rides a hundred miles during the race. And, you know, you start to think, what uh, aside from this like tiny little thing that they've memorized over and over it's almost like going to one spot in your favorite canyon and just doing it like for five days in a row and that's the only place you ride and then you might go to another state and do that same canyon over and over and over 500 times you know and that's like you're you're doing laps and you never get out there and experience the dangers of traffic the dangers of other riders of course there's changing weather conditions but let's be realistic you know you're not gonna slide off uh turn five at you know Assen and go into a tree you know what i mean so i don't know there's I, there's just something I, I was thinking about uh you know doing an article on all of the electronics and the way riding is changing and the way riding and racing is changing and i started listening to all these riders talk about the stuff that they do <clears throat> some of these guys do race uh motocross and if you watched last year uh hayden gillum or paid attention to the cycle world's man in the van with the plan uh, this guy did race road racing and flat track. J.D. Beach races road racing and flat track. Nikki Hayden, although he hasn't raced the two at the same time, has raced flat track and went to road racing. I know for a fact that he does sometimes. Uh, I've seen. I follow Roger Hayden on uh, his Instagram, and I see him and Nikki going around parking lots doing flat track stuff. So I know that they do still do this stuff as practice. They are capable motocross riders. Uh, they're capable. Uh, flat trackers and once in a while you will hear of a guy getting injured in an accident a road racer getting uh, injured in a motocross accident but this is for training you know what i mean it still doesn't mean that they go out and ride on the street uh that's still in my opinion more of a racing situation than a riding situation and so yeah i just wanted to kind of touch on the fact that although we idolize a lot of people and racers and builders and whatnot, we might actually be better riders. I know probably 90% of the people that listen to this show are better riders than me because <laughs> just because, um, it's hard to ride when you're uh, t- blind, I'm blind. So don't make fun of me. And, uh, I'm one and a half foot tall. And so finding a motorcycle that allows me to ride in, uh, at, in my current state, Uh, I'll just stop. You're better than me, okay? Hey, guys. Is all this talking about riding and the market and the world going to hell in a handbasket giving you a migraine? (laughs) That's exactly how I planned it. (laughs) Well, I mean, not to be mean or rude or anything, but that is how I planned it. I wanted to open the show with a head-splitting topic because I wanted to talk about our good friends over at goodbyemigraine.org. By good friends, I mean our one friend, Joe Set. Who is not the only friend I have in the world, but when it comes to getting rid of my splitting headaches, she is my best friend. Now, Josette is a holistic migraine coach, a lifelong migraine sufferer, so that you don't have to be. She will guide you through the steps that it takes to rid yourself of these pesky headaches that have been plaguing your life, I'm going to guess, since the beginning of time and memoriam. And, you know, who likes having their life dominated by an internal cranial pain when something as simple as changing your diet or 
you know, listening to the advice of a migraine coach can change all that for you. Check it out. Uh, goodbyemigraine.org. Tell Josette that Creative Writing sent you, and she'll understand. She needs to get rid of your migraine ASAP. Ah, crazy. I didn't know I was going to be back from the break so fast. <sighs> I had a big piece of steak in my mouth. Hey, uh, j- jumping back into the swing of things before I move on to like part B of the riders versus racers topic, I'm kind of myself wondering if I'm going to be moving soon from the riding, you know, to specifically only having a bike to ride like out in the desert or at the track, uh, moving along the lines that a lot of custom builders and stuff that don't even ride um, or necessarily race move into, and that's just having one specific bike. So I'm going to be kind of fleshing out a topic for the future. And I want you guys listening to send in what would be your ultimate bike as far as, uh, you need to pick a cruiser, you need to pick a sport bike, you need to pick a standard do all bike, and then you need to pick a bike that could go off road and maybe just maybe we can come together like the Simpsons did. Or if you've ever seen the book, If I Built a Car by Chris Van Dusen, excellent book. You should check it out, you and your kids. They take a bunch of different components or different aspects of motoring and slap it together in one bike. Now, I want you to pick four distinct bikes or five distinct bikes, one for each type of riding you may do, long touring, uh, all that great stuff, you know, off-roading. I want you to pick, we're not going to try to come up with one bike. What would be the bike that you pick for each of those categories? Let me run them off again, and I will try to post this up on uh, creative-riding. We're looking for a cruiser or long-distance tour, a sport bike, a standard, and that's, you know, that can be a standard naked or just a standard like a Bonneville, um, and an off-road, and that can be, you know, motocross, that can be dual sport. I don't necessarily know. A GS, like a F800 or an R1200, let's call that, um, let's call that a an off-road capable Africa twins would apply, but also the CRF 250 rally, any of the KTM. So off-road could mean literally anything that can go off-road. And you can see we're already, we're kind of doing like a Venn diagram circling over each other, but yeah, send me those. I'll put something up on uh, all of our social media asking for that. And in a couple months when we get some responses, hopefully if we get any, we'll flesh that out. Now to jump back into the electronics versus riding and racing. You know, I got them electronics on my mind. Can't quit thinking about how they changed my racing and my riding, baby. So let's cut this romantic music, dude. Although I do feel like getting romantic with your sensibilities right now. I wish I had you in here in the studio with me to talk to right now. Well, no, not you, but yeah, you. Yeah, yeah, you right there. Because I know your bike is much better than mine, and I know that you have ridden newer bikes that I haven't ridden. Well, and you, I know that you have a newer bike that still is uh, living in the 1980s, so I'm not even going to talk to you because it's brand new. But you, yeah, your bike has all the Wango Tango stuff on it, And I mean, we're talking like Wango Tango top of the line. You paid a lot for this bike, but it's trickling down now onto other bikes. And how has that changed riding versus racing? I kind of wanted to 
talk about that when I was thinking about why writers race and racers ride. Well, racers riding probably has nothing more to do with the fact that you pick something up, even if you learn to race on dirt or ride on dirt at first, that may not even translate ever over into enjoyment of riding on the street. Partially because riding on dirt kind of is like riding on a racetrack where you're not, you might encounter a dune buggy if you're out in the desert and stuff. But if you're out trail riding, like, you know, a wild animal, a bicyclist, a person on horseback is probably the only other thing you're going to encounter besides other bikers. And I've seen those terrible videos where people go head on. Let's, I mean, we're not talking about that. Let's not tangent down that road. We're talking about electronics and the fact that. You know, a lot of people that that ride bikes with electronics, uh, that that race and that trickles down, that's all great. We need racers to help us develop all that stuff that trickles down. I've gone back and forth on uh, electronics a billion times, uh, cursing them and then praising the, you know, the advent of them and their capabilities and what they do for us as, as riders. However, as riders, I really don't think it affects the way we ride that much. It might affect the way we crash. And it might affect the the efficacy with which we perform, but I don't think it changes the way we ride. We're still going to cruise on the freeway. We're still going to you know split lanes in in states where that's legal or becoming legal. We're still going to carve canyons, and the efficacy that I'm talking about is maybe we do that a little bit safer. We crash less. We're 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 at less risk of crashing, but it doesn't really change the way we ride as much as it affects the way racers have been racing. And we see that with, uh, you know, every generation of racers, I think the older guys get outdated, not necessarily because of their skill and not necessarily because their age and durability, but partially because of the way that things coming on the market that are now uh, ubiquitous or that are now, um, the I guess, the word I'm looking for, I can't quite think of. Uh, but it means that, you know, it's it's just a standard on the on the bikes now. And, and people have come into racing that way or into riding that way. And uh, I think I heard about it in, in MotoGP. And I think I heard about it in other uh, race series where these young kids were coming up and racing like video games, right? The older guys who had adapted, especially like guys that rode like two strokes and stuff like that, had adapted to these like hairy, crazy monsters that will pitch you off if you're not right with your throttle hand. You know, you come correct or you get the eject. You know what I mean? I just made that up, by the way. Don't that's copyrighted now. So back in the day, on a technological level, two and four strokes weren't that different. They're fundamentally different engines, but technologically they were the same. So guys could adapt riding styles and make the transition over to a four stroke. But then you have stuff like, you know, traction control coming on and and ABS, race ABS and all that great stuff that started to shoot out of the more recent years and more recent developments. And... What happens is that older guys that used to, or not older guys even, Valentino Rossi per se is one one guy, and he's not really even that old, guys that c- have come from that past era. He did make that transition um, from, you know, two-stroke to current, like, 2017 model uh, GP bike where you have gone from 
you know, two stroke, like fuel injection and stuff like that and, and mapping, not even fuel injection, but just like fuel mapping and cam stuff like engine stuff was the big developments back in those days, trying to make motors more powerful. Uh, I mean, you would have, uh, you'd up the brakes, I guess, in order to compensate for that. But I mean, a lot of stuff that was happening was not bike and rider integrative. You know what I mean? It was like motor. We did, we changed this at the motor. We changed this on the chassis. How they work is how they work. And you got to like figure a way around that and adjust those things. But now the computers take over and the computers kind of adjust things. So we have people coming in this whole new uh, spate of MotoGP riders, uh, World Superbike, everybody that has come in since the last and leaving generation of racers that comes in and rides more along the lines of like playing a video game. They come in, the electronics do a lot for them. They don't have that muscle memory or the physical memory of getting pitched off a bike or like the bike reacting this way because you do this. And so therefore they just crank it and they lean over and they give it gas and they learn that they can lean a little further and all this great stuff that the older guys have to kind of relearn. So I don't think electronics necessarily change the way we ride as riders on the road. And so I don't, you know, kind of corresponding with what I was saying earlier about you being a better rider than a lot of road racers. uh, I do think that they offer certain advantages to racers. And obviously, you know, when they learn to race on it and it gets developed and it trickles down to us it's all great but for the most part all these crazy electronics that we hear about i really don't think makes us better riders i do think it makes us more uh less prone to crashing and i mean that's always good i'm not saying that's a bad thing but i'm just saying that it's not necessarily even you know beneficial to us as riders to have all this crazy new technology come in but to racers it definitely does make a difference we even see it on dirt now there's like launch control coming on for motocross bikes we saw marquez at the super prestigio fooling around with his handlebar changing some settings and even if it was just rudimentary mapping i mean we kind of like beat that uh with a with a stick during the uh, right after the episode of where the Super Prestigio aired, but all the speculation that comes out about that, but even even that sort of stuff. I mean, you see guys racing, guys trying to do it old school by switching up the body, uh, the lines, this and that, and you see another guy reaching down, clicking something on the handlebars, and it makes him more effective. So just to go down this rabbit hole once again, I guess, and to wrap up my thoughts, is that I was just thinking about Racers versus riders, the fact that if you are a rider, you probably know more about navigating the streets safely and are a better actual rider than most racers. And most racers won't ride on roads. Valentino took a look at the Isle of Man even and said, nope. Uh, I really praise John McGinnis and uh, Guy Martin and I think even like Ian... Oh, shoot. I forget. You know, Hutchinson, I think these guys race. I'm pretty sure race road racing um, like World Superbike and stuff like that or British Superbike and then also race Northwest 200 and Isle of Man and stuff like that. So those guys really can road race and road race. So that is one thing that like makes a difference. And I can see electronics coming into play then. But then again, you know, most of us won't be doing 200 miles an hour around a stone wall anytime soon. And so relying on our throttle mapping and and, uh, IMU to take control of our braking as we're trying to navigate a turn like that is irrelevant. 
Let me know if you guys are going out there on the street with your uh, electronic heavy bikes and dragging your helmet on the ground and totally taking stuff in a different way, riding uh, commuting in a different way. Um, I can see where on the track that would really make a difference if you're learning to learn or you're trying to push the limit and you've got runoff and you're like trying to see how far you can take that uh, cornering IMU, you know, and slide control and all that stuff. But yeah, as far as the street, I really don't think it's changing the way riders are riding. And Dane Westby, who used to love riding as much as on the street as the track, ironically paid for it. Like I said earlier, you don't have left-turning minivans and you don't have uh, light poles and mailboxes and all that stuff on the street. And you do uh, not have that on the track. You do have that on the street. And so therefore, um, yeah, I don't think riders, racers actually would prefer to be out there in that dangerous environment. So pat yourself on the back, hip hip hooray for you, and also hooray for you because you get to enjoy the benefits of all this crazy stuff that the road racers um, dial in for us. ABS, race ABS, cornering ABS, rain and ride modes, all that great stuff. Um, Yeah, let's get out of here on this note. Do the head shake, baby. (laughs) Okay. Hey, uh, I wanted to get into reading a Craigslist ad, which I never do. I wanted to cover a little bit of listener feedback and uh, talk about some other things before we wrap up the show here. So the Craigslist ad that I want to read isn't your typical Craigslist ad. For sale in Grants Pass, which isn't Oregon as far as I know, but it's on sale in the L.A. Craigslist. Uh, I found a 1994 Harley-Davidson VR1000. You may have seen this on our Facebook page. It's not cheap. It's $75,000, but that's cheaper than a lot of collector cars. And this bike comes with a ton of spares. I'm going to go ahead and just read the ad. It's chock full of pictures, by the way, if you want to hit up our Facebook page and check it out before this bike expires and is gone from the internet forever. This Harley VR1000 and the collection of spares that goes with it is not for everyone or someone wanting to go uh, collect a Harley Superbike for their static collection. It's about the possibilities it presents to participate in vintage racing with an incredibly rare factory road race motorcycle. This is a chance to own a bike built in limited quantities with no source other than the parts included with the bike to maintain and support many seasons of unmaintainium experience. Unobtainium experience is kind of hard to obtain, by the way. So the unobtainium experience of riding one of a few Harley factory superbikes. If you're of a mind to understand what's being offered in the description and images and want to have the opportunity to race at any level, a factory superbike, without reinventing the wheel, read on. This is not just a bike for sale. It's an experience that very few will ever have to place yourself in the middle of the piece of history. The story of Harley entering into the world of AMA superbike racing is one of a two-headed chicken attempting to go in one direction and being of two different minds tripping over itself in the process. In 1988, Mark Tuttle, the VP of Engineering at Harley, started the ball rolling by assigning engineer Mark Miller to design the engine. After getting the bottom end completed, the project was taken to Roush Racing in 1999 to complete the first running engine. From that point, Harley brought the project back to the factory to complete the program, Harley-Davidson used parts and sourcing where they could internally and from their established outside parts suppliers. 
Some had no experience in racing. How different when compared to Honda entering the world-class racing as, as an example, hiring the best designers, best tuners, best managers, and best riders, no matter who or where they worked. Honda committed to winning with whatever it took, but Harley apparently never wandered far from its normal suppliers or domestic sources during this initial gestation. Possible politics, possible mismanagement, a possibility of a gamble that backfired, the results would be a failure before the Harley eventually pulled the plug seven years later. Before the Harley, I like that. But before that, Steve Scheib was hired from Roush in the early 90s to manage the development of the bike inside of Harley. Scheib had worked on the heads and the machine's fuel injection system and was familiar with the design as anyone at the time. Scheib was behind the eight ball from the get-go, and the bike had been commissioned in 1988, and it was now 1993 before they had a running motorcycle. The original brief the bike was based upon was a currently state-of-the-art superbikes in 1988. It would seem today unreasonable to think that other factories would have remained stagnant in their development for five years, but the lack of experience shown by Harley did not take the lengthy development period of getting the bike to a finished state. By the mid-90s, most supersport-prepared motorcycles would give the VR1000 fits at the track, much less superbikes in their current state of tune. The performance goal line had not changed. It moved from into another state. The VR's first races were, in fact, in 94 with Miguel Duhamel and Fritz Kling. Duhamel could ride a wheelbarrow faster than most riders of the day could ride a superbike, and it was his supreme effort that led to great qualifying at mid-Ohio and actually leading the race until a mechanical failure stopped the run. This after grenading at Daytona partway through the race. The bike was not ready to race. It was dramatically underpowered and results showed. Harley management fought a divided war on whether to scrap the project or continue. The result being unpredictable funding each year, lack of direction, and corporate backroom backbiting that even included Eric Buell. A long story made short, the bike became a rolling test uh, bed. Let me restart that sentence. A long story made short, the bike became a rolling test bed of development parts and new solutions to track demonstrated issues. Harley encouraged several private teams to campaign the bike, including Tilly's, and the bikes for sale here owned by Mike Canepa's 10K Racing run out of San Jose Harley-Davidson. The best finish for the VR1000 was by Tommy Wilson at Mid-Ohio in 96, who would have finished the race in first place, but because of a red flag had been thrown earlier in the lap, positions reverted back to the previous lap, and the win was vapor. 1996 was the best year for the VR1000, with Carr and Wilson placing well and having a shot at podiums at Sears when another red flag was thrown and they suffered mechanical failures at the restart. Carr's bike is the roller chassis included with this sale. Disaster after disaster chased the factory team, and worse was Tommy Wilson's crash at Luden, ending his career. The powers-to-be finally pulled the purse strings closed that year, and the bikes were sold off to the private team owners or others wanting to seize a part of history. Rumor is that the engine was the basis for the V-Rod engine, another Harley miscue that has left heads scratching. Mike Canepa is an interesting part of the AFM and AMA racing in the late 80s through the mid-90s, and Mike was part of the Bay Area Motorcycle Club racing community, going through a series of bikes that were more and more sophisticated in succession. He ran a RD400 at Sears in 1981 with more RDs and TZs to follow. Vintage racing became a hobby, and he won the ARMA 250 Championship and 450 Modified at the Pro-Am Series at Sears in 1985. 
Canepa was racing vintage motocross during this time, but he blew his new, I'm going to assume that's knee, he blew his knee out in 95 just after ordering VR1000 number 13 from Harley as a street bike with the intent of racing it. Brian Lefebvre rode it at Sears with limited success, and Harley approached him to run the last race of the year at Phoenix with his bike. A forgotten rider who was running 883 class was supposed to race the bike, but a crash broke his arm. Michael Barnes heard about the open seat and approached Mike about racing the bike, and he finished 10th in that race. As they say, that set the hook and Mike was sucked in. Barnes and Mike decided to race the full season the following year, and Harley was more than obliging, and Mike ended up with more bikes and riders, adding Cal Rayborn 111 for the 1996 season. Michael stayed with the program from beginning to end, and the bike was always the fastest privateer bike, but was plagued by high-speed misfires due to the issues in the wiring loom. They raced it at Daytona, but the factory gave them the wrong washers for the clutch, which developed a leak. Cal, aware of the oil seeping out, crashed, chasing Mike Barnes on the Briton. With Harley out of the picture and dumping everything at Mike's feet, the business of running a race team on a national level became more labor than fun. Mike finally became tired of dealing with the grief of running a team and packed it in. One of the last straws was with the wrecking of the team truck on someone's birthday celebration back east. The fun had turned to vapor. Mike brought the bikes home, unloaded them in the spares, and pulled the garage door down. Mike had three race prep bikes that were ridden by both riders, and the last time number 60 was raced was at Sears, which won the Sound of Thunder race in 1997. Along the way, the factory rebuilt the engines and updated everything, except the frames and cases. The oil pump was changed, cams, pistons, rods, a a six-speed gearbox, anything that was factory-built Mike had within a week while while Harley was involved. In 1996, Harley gave Mike an extra chassis, included with this sale here on Craigslist, which had been raced the previous season by Chris Carr, the one that he won the pole with at Pomona. When Harley closed up shop, they offered Mike the last reiteration of the engine, which had not been run, and all the latest electronics. Factory quick shifter, the factory built the engine and the bike, along with the engine on the stand, which are included with this bike. The bikes have all factory race stuff, and this bike has a carbon, uh, carbon, carbon, a slipper clutch. That does not make sense. Carbon fiber AP slipper clutch? Uh, there's another slipper clutch in the spares, and the carbon slipper clutch is one of the best slipper clutches ever at a cost of $10,000 each. It has a P1 system, three, plus acquisition system, which is the same as the factory bikes. Mike told me he bought every update the factory had during his time running the team. The lower cam drive has been changed to a gear drive. The bike has the AP rotors. The rear subframe and front subframe are, ne- are new for 97 The body work is from the original to the last version, all made by Gemini. The last set is a carbon fiber and has not been drilled or painted. It has a Penske shock installed, but a Fox shock is included with the spares. The bike has not been run since 1997. It's in need of a total preparation and cosmetic restoration. Then again, where else can you buy a complete Harley factory superbike race team with enough spares to race for many seasons? The selling price is $75,000, which includes everything shown in the images. They provide the VIN number, and 
They are located at Automania, which is 895 Southeast Gladiolia Drive in Grants Pass, Oregon. It, you should check out www.automaniagp.com if you are interested in buying this bike. And I always love a Craigslist ad that is chock full of history, especially when it has to deal with one so close to the topics at hand today, such as Harley-Davidson, Eric Buell, road racing, and the bevy of electronics that are not present on this bike. All right. Hey, while we're on a Harley, I, w- I did want to read an email that I received from a listener uh, regarding uh, episode 44, which I know is a while ago, but still uh, want to blast through this real quick because I feel like it's important now. I made a lot of bold statements in episode 44, and I made a statement back then about racing and and Harley-Davidson and tariffs, and it seems appropriate now with, you know, what's happening in the motorcycle industry shakeup and the beef tariff shakeup that happened in the last couple weeks. Um, So in that episode, I talked about, you know, the imposed tariffs to keep Jap bikes out of, you know, competing with Harley Davidson. And I think, I believe they taxed everything over 750. Uh, all heavyweight bikes received a tariff and it was basically protection, like a protectionist move to keep Harley Davidson, uh, on top of the market. Now we always, we've been talking a little bit throughout this episode of how did Harley stay on top? I guess now we know. Um, so, Hey, this is from Max, by the way. Hello, creative writing just finished Enjoying episode 44, and I've listened to them all, but I do have a couple of things I'd like to share. First, having been a motorcycle buying age during the HD tariff years, I remember it had nothing to do with racing. The economy was still lagging from its last tough time, and HD accused all the Japanese manufacturers of dumping their heavyweight bikes on the U.S. market at cost, and that was unfair competition. Since Harley-Davidson made nothing under 750cc, they didn't care if they dumped those bikes here. It was only the bikes that they felt directly hurt their sales, and they wanted the tariffs to be applied to. At that time, everyone had a glut of bikes on their showroom floor, and no one had money for toys. Unfortunately, that's how we treat them there here, but that's another story. And HD only had like 4% of the heavyweight motorcycle market. This was also during the AMF years for Harley-Davidson, and the bikes were awful. They leaked, they broke, they shook apart, they were slow, and they were expensive. By making the import bikes more expensive, it was easier for them to compete. It probably in reality did save them, but improving their product like the Evo motor and the quality control implemented by employees slash owners and marketing to other people rather than just the faithful kept the product line alive. And the email goes on and made a bunch of other stuff about, you know, similar things to what I've been talking to recently about do we need to go 8,000 miles an hour? I don't care if you go 8,000 miles an hour. I'm just, I was just saying, <laughs> I don't want to go down that slippery slope. But thanks, Max, for the uh, the input then. I think I thanked you right after that episode. But also, I just want to just say how relevant it still is. I mean, that was like 44 episodes ago was like 15 or 20 weeks ago. And it's still very relevant today. Like these issues just keep coming up. You wonder why I keep talking about electronics. You wonder why I keep talking about um, you know, weird, weird stuff that just, you know, it's just 
the cycle of life that just keeps happening as writers and as the industry. And as you can see there, the industry and the economy was bad in the eighties and, you know, went bad again in the nineties, went bad again in the aughts. So hold on to your horses, folks. We're in for a crazy ride. Now a little bit of follow-up regarding my whole spiel on the uh, duds of last week. Um, I got a message from Eric R. saying, Hey man, listen to your latest podcast. Regarding Kawasaki, the Z800 was a 806cc and the bike weighed over 500 pounds. It was porky. The Z900 is actually the 948cc based off of the Z1000. It's the same stroke with a reduced bore. The bore being made smaller and the stroke kept the same means the torque characteristic for the given displacement will be more dramatic than it is on the uh, one or the 1043cc motor. Plus, the Z900 weighs in at about 465 pounds. Regarding Yamaha, the FZ8 was a 779cc based on the 998cc engine from the last FZ1, but with a lighter crank and proprietary engine head, and it weighed about 468 pounds. The FZ09 at 847cc will compete with the Z900. It's lighter and will have near the same power, and I found an article that stated that the H that stated the HP figures for the Z900. So basically, we got a 650 class, Suzuki's got a 750 class, Yamaha has the 847, Kawi will have the 950, Aprilia the Shiver 900. So there's just about no gaps from about 650 to 10,000 Seven or 1077cc, which is the Tuono for sporting street bikes. And I agree. And if you're willing to consider the CBR 500R, then I guess we can say, you know, there's a 150cc gap, you know, but from 500 up to, to 1000, the market for sport bikes is just incredible. Uh, cruisers, not so much. So, Eric R., thank you for that input. Very quickly, I wanted to announce that since listening to the Loud Pipes uh, episode about Victory and their salute and all that great stuff that they've been covering, and they were talking about cheap deals on uh, Victory Impulses, I looked up the Indian dealer here in Los Angeles, and there are $20,000 Impulses selling for $8,000, and that is a steal, my friend. Like That is over half off. And that's incredible. And if I had that money right now, uh, I would pull the trigger on that. I, I actually thought about, I mean, it, it, I've wanted an impulse. That's like the one bike I think I would have wanted, uh, as far as electrics and man, 8,000 bucks is a screaming deal. Um, that's low enough for me to consider buying one in lieu of an ice bike, even if the range isn't that good because at least it's not 20,000 bucks. So if you're in, uh, they had two on their website. One has already sold. I imagine this other one's going to go pretty fast. So if you're in the market for an electric bike, you live in LA, buy the Impulse, park it at my house. I swear I won't ever ride it except every day. And then uh, we can be best friends. All right. Before this show gets too crazy long, I want to wrap it up. Don't forget to go out to the uh, flat track this weekend at Del Mar. I'm going to be hanging out there with some people. What do you know? And uh, don't forget, if you're in L.A., there's also the Triumph of L.A. LA, LA cycle sports ride. <laughs> it starts at La Cienega Boulevard in Inglewood on Saturday, and it goes from 10 to 1. There's going to be trains, trucks, boats, bridges, and bikes. What? They're going to go riding all over L.A. 
So kickstands up at 11. They're going to be exploring the industrial underbelly of the port of Los Angeles. So that ought to be fun riding around grimy parts of the city. At any rate, yes, let's uh, wrap up the current events because I want to get to something extremely special. If you know, if you listen to the Motorcycle Misfits podcast, you know that Mean Muggin Mike and Miranda Mary Muffins are going to be having a little baby muffins soon. And I was divulged this information last year at Born Free before I'm sure they told a lot of their friends, so I kept my lips shut. Snitches get stitches. And what I wanted to do is you know, give them some parenting advice since I have two wild uh, stallions of my own. And ever since that day, people I've talked to, I have always got parenting advice for, you know, during interviews. I say, hey, give me a little parenting advice too on the side. You know what I'm saying? So Mike and Mary, I'd like to offer you my own parenting advice, but I think first we should ask some professional riders what they think about being a parent and, you know, how do you get your start as a kid and how do you give a start as a parent? So let's jump in here to a couple of past guests experiences with riding, growing up a motorcyclist and being a parent. All right. Well, you may remember Jason Goldfinger Goldmeyer from a few episodes ago we we talked about drag racing and his uh horse or his swing arm bending motors that he builds but now we're going to talk about being a parent and riding so jason uh real quick how long have you been riding motorcycles i've been riding motorcycles since the age six or seven basically when i got my training wheels off my pedal bike i got my first dirt bike Awesome. And was it like a, was your family into it or was it just, did you just ask your parents, Hey, I, I, I kind of want to try riding and your mom pulled out all of her hair and screamed no, or, you know, how, how did that all happen? Um, all while I was growing up, my dad had Harleys, you know, he had the old 70 style choppers with the coffin gas tanks and stuff. And, uh, my dad and uncle actually own a motorcycle salvage yard in green Bay. So it was pretty easy to talk him into letting me have a dirt bike. Right. So it seems like, you know, from a very young age, you were, you, if you weren't on a bike, you were seeing, you know, you had them right there in front of you at the salvage yard. Oh yeah. All the time. <laughs> cool. So that means you're like a third generation biker for sure. Uh, second generation biker, third generation racer. Oh, okay. Okay. And then, uh, do you have kids yourself? Yep, I have a, I have two. My daughter Brooklyn, she's seven, and then my son Hayden, he's five. How? Well, being a parent, I mean, and being a racer is probably hard. How? How do you balance those two things? Oh, uh, you never balance it. <laughs> <laughs> right, it balances you if it if it uh, if it's nice, right? Right. Um, I've actually had to cut back on my racing quite a bit because the kids are getting to the age where they're in soccer and, you know, and they're still at the age where they like hanging out with me. Right. You know, and they want to do stuff with me. So it's like, all right, I'll cut back on racing. We'll go do stuff. And then, you know, 
five, 10 years from now, when you can't stand to look at me, I'll start racing more again. Right. <laughs> any, any interest in getting them started? I mean, are they, cause they're right around the age that you were right when you started, is there any interest in kind of making a fourth generation racer there? Um, my daughter, not so much, but my son, he, he's raring to go. I already have a dirt bike bought for him. So as soon as he gets, oh, no his, train, as soon as he gets his training wheels off. That's awesome. And then no, I don't know how your family was when you were growing up. What did your parents think? Obviously your dad rode, but, um, so it was okay with him, but was your mom, uh, did she freak out or, or anything like that? Or were they pretty supportive? No, she was supportive. She, she rode my dirt bike too. So <laughs> <That's rad. laughs> she's like, Hey man, we should get him a bigger one. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, you mentioned having soccer and, and all that great stuff that comes with, with being a kid nowadays. Um, how, I mean, how involved are your kids with your racing as, uh, or even your riding or, you know, being a motorcyclist and, and, and wrencher and all this and that as, as you are with their stuff. I mean, uh, do they show any interest in it or is it just really kind of two separate worlds right now? Um, my daughter in the beginning, you know, she did show a lot of interest, but now she's showing more interest in other things. And, uh, but my son, anytime that I'm out in the garage working on my race bike or working on my street bikes, he's, he's out here working on his little toy motorcycle. He's got like one of those little, oh, you know, those little bikes without the pedals, balance bikes, whatever they're called. Yeah. 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 He's out, he's out there working on that and he's putting stickers on it. Cause this, he says the stickers make him go faster. And <laughs> Hey man, every sticker has like five horsepower, right? That's right. So when you, when you're trying to decide new shoes for my kid or new shoes for my bike, is it hard to kind of balance out your budget or balance out like your lifestyle for racing? Or is it, is it no question family first bike second, even though you've been doing bikes a hell of a lot longer than you've been doing kids and family? Um, yeah, it's, it's always for kids first, but I've actually got a situation worked out with my wife that, any overtime money or any bonus money I get from work goes into racing. So that right. my overtime and, and bonus money is basically my racing budget. <laughs> so she's like, honey, you've been at work 160 hours this week. Please come home. <laughs> like, no, <laughs> I got a race this weekend. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. That's cool. So, I mean, you guys have got stuff figured out, which is nice to hear because I could see where sometimes that would, you know, may lead to a fight or may lead to, you know, misunderstandings down the road. So that's pretty awesome that you guys have something worked out, you know? Yeah. And I, I put all my, I put all my racing parts and stuff on the credit card and I pay the credit card bill and she has no, she does not want to know how much money I have stuck in that bike. Right. She, she does not want to know. <laughs> <laughs> if you ever, uh, if you ever buy the farm, so to speak, she'll be like, how do we get a $60,000 <laughs> credit card bill? <laughs> Um, so that kind of leads into my second question. Cause you've obviously got a lot of spousal support, you know, to, to do it and, and approval, I guess I should say, mm. how, how supportive are your family of your racing career? Oh, they're, they're great actually. You know, um, my parents, you know, they're the one, my dad's the one that got me into drag racing and he's there whenever he can be. Um, my wife, my wife and kids, they used to come every weekend, but now that 
not, you know, now their attention span is shorter. So they still want to come to the races, but like an hour after they get there, they're like, uh, can we go home now? Right. So, <laughs> so they don't come as often, but they, they still come. Yeah. It's like, I don't know. I guess if I wasn't racing drag racing, you know, just watching a bunch of cars go down in the straight line probably wouldn't be the most exciting thing for, you know, a little kid, but one day they'll get there. Yeah. And, and they love going the nights that the jet cars are there. You know, kids love jet cars, anything with fire, you know? Yeah. I can attest to that. We just, uh, I just went, took my kids last night to a car event and my son was almost half asleep until the jet car came out and then all of a sudden wide awake. So yeah, they, they definitely love fire and, and smoke and weird sounds. So that's, yep. that's cool. And then, uh, let's like looking to the future, how, you know, raising your kids around bikes and with bikes and in the lifestyle, you know, what type of role models or whatever do you, do you, I mean, I guess, do you play a role model to your kids as far as like what a motorcyclist should be or, you know what I mean? Are you, are you, would you be happy if they got interested in it or heartbroken if they didn't, or would it be, be okay with you? Um, I'd be happy if they got into it. And if, if they didn't, it, it, it wouldn't heartbreak me. Yeah. You know, they you can, just, they can, they can do their own thing. Just, right. Yeah. You just disown them. Right. And then <laughs> they can do whatever they want to do. <laughs> well, great. Those are some, uh, that's actually some great news because, you know, I know a lot of people out there kind of struggle with also balancing parenting and I mean, parenting's hell, it's hard enough, you know, and then add trying to have like this almost separate life on top of that could be a challenge. Do you have any advice for bikers that either have kids or that want to have kids? Um, don't, no, I'm just kidding. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> don't do one of those. And for the sake of his not getting his balls chopped off by his wife, we won't mention which one not to do. Right? <laughs> no. Um, the only advice I would say is, you know, give your kids the attention. The bike will be there, you know, work on the bike when they're, after they go to bed. That's what I do a lot of the time, you know? Oh yeah. The, the kids are only going to be little once the bike, the bike will always be there. Yeah. I almost said the exact opposite. You know, the kids will always be there, but then my wife pointed out that, Hey, they're going to be a lot bigger though. And one day they'll uh, be able to beat you up for not hanging out with them. So you better hang out with them now. <laughs> so I said, yeah, she, she had a point. So I think that's excellent advice. All right. Well, Hey, thank you so much for your, your insight on parenting and, and being a biker parent. And, uh, we love talking to you. That was Jason. You, Jason Gulmeyer. You might remember him from episode 40 of the creative writing motorcycle podcast. Thanks again, Jason. No problem. It's always a blast. Yeah. Jason Gulmeyer, everybody voice of reason. And yeah, Mike and Mary, the bikes will always be there. You won't, so you better get back on them ASAP. And I'm glad to hear that you guys aren't giving up the dream. I'm super glad to hear that Mary only quit riding while she was pregnant. Because I was like, she's going to be one of those mamas that, you know, I don't know, just gets crazy overcautious. Because once you have a baby, it messes with your brain. Hormones do crazy things to your mind and your body. But I was glad to hear on the last episode that they were on that she plans fully on getting another bike. And they're going to switch off a garage day. So that's kind of cool. Mike? You, on the other hand, you're in for it. Let's move on to someone else. Good morning. Hello, hello. It's Dan here from Australia, and I've been riding bikes since I was 
four. I think my dad first gave me my first motorcycle, which was a Peewee 80 when I was four years old. And the first thing I did was loop it in the bushes, showing mum how cool it was. Yeah, that's Dan. You might recognize Dan from our intro, but did you know that Dan's mom and dad met on a motorbike? Let's hear all about Dan's childhood and his family upbringing. You've been riding since you were four. What role did your parents play in your motorcycling enthusiasm and your subsequent motorcycling career? Right, for sure. Well, um, I think it's... I think that it, I think they were just motorcycle people from from the first um, from the get go. Mum Mum was from England, so she was uh, an Essex girl, and my dad had migrated from Cyprus to try and find a new life in in England. And um, he had a red Indian, and he used to cruise up and down this patch of I don't know, I suppose just like a hangout spot back then. We're talking about probably the early forties. And he had an old, old red Indian and um, he'd go up and down this patch and where the school kids were. And, and that's how he met mum. And mum was, you know, charmed off her feet because of this handsome young Greek guy cruising around on a motorcycle being the envy of all girls. And, uh, you know, they quickly fell in love and, and got married and, and then had children uh, and moved, migrated to Australia in the 70s. That's where my sort of my history kicks in because I was born in 72 and mum and dad were you know already here and had established and had started working and all that sort of stuff but yeah right from the get-go both brothers had motorcycles dad was a motorcycle rider so I just naturally wanted a motorcycle and as soon as I was able to you know being big enough to actually have one I was lucky enough that dad got me one that's so awesome. looking back, at, yeah, looking back at it from there is a weird thing because, um, you know, it, it, you're definitely right that my parents totally influenced my motorcycle lifestyle. I just never really thought about it that way, but yeah, for sure. Yeah, it definitely sounds like you've got it in your blood. I mean, that's for sure. Yeah, you know, that's yep. And did your mom ride? You got the bug. Uh, I do you know what I can't actually remember mum riding. I think she was more of a pillion. More, more for the um, yeah, for the thrill of it with dad rather than of herself. But you know, she was a mom. She had yeah. five kids. Had yeah. a whole lot of shit going on. <laughs> and and your dad's Greek. And if I if I know my Greek, you know, friends that yeah, you probably wouldn't want to be telling dad how to drive or like showing him up <laughs> yeah, <laughs> or anything like not, that. Not really, mate. <laughs> yeah. Oh, what a beautiful story. Uh, Later in Dan's life, he was overcome by tragedy when his mom and dad passed away a week apart from each other. That's what happens when you are a motorcycling family. You ride together until the end. And after that happened, Dan had an epiphany. You know, things changed in his life and he realized something. And here's what he told me about that event. You only you only get one shot at this. You're only here on the planet for this short life, and you've got to take full advantage of every single minute of it. So live it like you've never lived before. And I think about three months later, I bought a brand new Ducati Hypermotard Evo 1100 SP. Some people eat cake. Some people drink alcohol. Some people buy Ducati 1100 SPs. I like the latter. Well, our next guest is a super good friend of the show, a sometimes field reporter, and contributor all around, and he really contributed to this part of the show as well. 
All right. So you might remember Paul from episode 34. He, we talked a little bit about his, his beginnings in dirt biking, and he told us that he basically got his start as a, as a kid, as a lot of people do. So I have him back here, and I want to ask him something. Um, so, Paul, really quickly, when you got into motorbiking, you told us on the show before that, you know, what your first bike was and that you had purchased it yourself. But was your how did you you know, how did your family react to that? How did your family respond, I guess, to you getting into motorbiking? Were they already into motorbiking? Were, were they supportive or was it like a solo venture? Did you have to convince them? Yeah, it was definitely a solo venture. Um, no one in my family was was into it at all. Um, it was really just through through my friend and 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 his dad that uh, enabled me to to do any type of um, dirt biking when when I was a kid. Uh, but my family was didn't understand it uh, and um, never did and and didn't. I wouldn't say they discouraged it. Um, and you know and when I got around to turning sixteen and getting my license, they they didn't you know sit there and tell me all the horror stories about how I'm going to get smushed and on the road and this or that, but. Um, but they, they just didn't understand it. And, you know, but to me it was, it was like a passion. So I just had to do it. Right. Obviously you spent, you know, almost your entire life on, on two wheels of some sort. When you finally, I won't say settled down, but when you had kids, how did, uh, did you take a break from it then? No, uh, I, I know a lot of people do, they get to that point and they say, Oh, I need to just be more careful and do things that are safe. And I don't want to do that anymore. But I, um, I always felt like, you know, I had an excuse to ride, to, you know, my commute and, and I just loved it. And um, I, I I didn't see it as like a, a dangerous hobby. I just, you know, it was just part of my life. Um, and yeah, so I, I, it was nothing that I ever really considered giving up. There there was a period, I think, of um, uh, I, I might have been without a motorcycle at one point for maybe six months or so. And I'm sure I was going out of my mind. Right. The worst six months you've ever spent on this earth, right? Yes. So, yeah. And that's, I think actually, in my opinion, that is probably the best uh, advice and and some of the most uh, sage words I've heard um, because I think that it's really a lot of parents do sacrifice. They, they, you know, once you have a kid, you start sacrificing the stuff that you love to do, stuff that you used to do, hobbies that you used to have, you just don't have time for, things like that. Uh, I have two little kids and it's increasingly hard to find time to get away because I feel like I'm going to come home and they're going to have my wife tied up or something like that, you know, or like, you know, it's hard enough to keep their house clean. It's like every sitcom where, you know, your house is like a museum piece. And then as soon as you have kids, it's like a disaster, like a garbage dump, you know what I mean? And, And I swear to God, we clean up at night, everything looks great. And then by, you know, six o'clock, seven o'clock the next morning, it's just looks like Tasmanian devil went through there. So yeah. how do you, when your kids were young, how, how did you keep engaged? And, and I guess more importantly for the next generation, how did you get them involved in motorbiking? Um, well, when, when my, when my older son, when he was, I think about six maybe pretty young a lot younger than when i started i i went out and i bought a, a T, ttr 90 i think it was or you know one of those like a yamaha starter type bike didn't have you know training wheels but it was you know one of those tiny little bikes that, that was easy to get around on um and he was he kind of liked it then he kind of get into it and then one day um he he went over the hand 
and he refused to ride for like two years. No. Um, <laughs> and then, uh, but then his brother, his younger brother said, Oh, you know, after a couple of years, he was getting to be that same age. And he said, well, maybe I'll try it. So, so my older son started to get back into it at that point. And whereas my younger son, it didn't stick. My older son, you know, kind of picked his interest again. So he's, he's back into it. Um, and, and we've been doing that now for, for a few years. Um, and my older son now is, he's, uh, going to be 15 in December. Um, and so he, uh, he's, you know, talking about, we're talking about what to do when he gets his permit and, and he can ride my WR250 now just fine, which is a, you know, a licensed, uh, bike. So, um, I'm nervous about him riding on the streets. Um, but when I think about it, I'm just, I'm just as nervous of him being in a car out on the street. Uh, he's, he's pretty comfortable on the bike. I think he's, uh, the way I've seen him ride the, that four wheeler out in Utah, um, I'm more confident with him on a bike than I am in a car. <laughs> right. Right. You know, and that is a, a car is a pretty false sense of security, uh, in, in, in some ways. I mean, of course you got him in this cage, but then they start thinking that way, you know, like, all right, I can't get hurt. So yeah, that's, that's an interesting way to look at it. Um, another thing is the, did you, when all this was going down, how was the, uh, wife unit because i know sometimes there can be some resistance there i know on the solstice slam you said she had a different house did you just make her live there while you were like introducing them to motorbiking <laughs> <laughs> no well there's a couple different things going on i uh so i I've, I've been divorced for um for a few years and and i've been remarried now uh, for a couple of years so um their mom lives in her house uh a few miles away she, um uh, she, i mean as long as she knew me I was into riding. It was, you know, I, it was just who I was. So when we had kids and, and I started taking them as, as soon as they could reach the passenger pegs on the back of my bike, I was taking them for rides. I, you know, they just hold on for dear life and we'd go around the, you know, around, around the block, things like that. Um, so it was just a natural part of their lives as, as well. So their mom never really had too much of an issue with it. She never really said anything about it to me and, 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 if there were issues, she would have told me. Right. Yeah. Way to go. Way to go, dad. And, and also way to go, mom. I mean, that's pretty important to be supportive like that. Yeah. So that that's pretty cool. So they uh, more or less have been, whether or not they know it, they've been on two wheels as well. They've been indoctrinated, I, I would say, even if they haven't accepted it yet. It uh, sounds like you're, you know, a little bit of trauma can, you know, lead to some regression, but I guarantee that, you know, later in life, they'll be, you know, at least if they get back into it, they'll be comfortable with it. So that's pretty cool. Right. Right. It sounds like your kids have it a little bit easier than you had it from, you know, when you were growing up, not that your parents were discouraging or anything like that, but you're actually seem to like endorse it. You know what I mean? So that's, that's sort of what I was wondering about just because I know, you know, being a parent, it's sometimes hard to balance unless you make it part of your lifestyle. It's hard to balance, you know, being a parent, being around, you know, having your kids do all the crazy kid stuff that, you know, we as parents want to have our kids do to keep them occupied and engaged. And then also like setting aside some, some time to say, Hey, this is uh, not just 
you know, this could also be a hobby or, you know, you could race or whatever like that, but also let's just like hang out and do family time on these, on these bikes and go camping. Like you're saying, go, go to Utah wheeling and all that stuff, whether, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be on two wheels, but you know, it's, it's all sort of in that same power sports sort of sphere. So that's, that's pretty cool. I, I, I like that. And I, I, as my own kids are getting big enough right now to where, if I were to move out of state and blindfold their mom and put earmuffs on her, I might be able to take them dirt biking. You know what I mean? <laughs> but no, she, she's not, uh, not down with motorcycling for sure because her whole family has, has also, uh, you know, several members of her family have ridden bikes over the years, but she's just scared even if they walk down the stairs here. So, I mean, it's not, it's just her motherly instincts kind of take over. So, but that's, that's really cool to get your kids kind of over that and get them on two wheels uh, ASAP. You know what I mean? So good on you. And and part of it is, and just whatever your interests are, you you know, you want to share them with your kids and and see if they're, if they take in, you know, a similar interest in it, you know, just to see what, what they're all about. My younger son has has made it perfectly clear that he's just not into it. He's 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 good about doing it when we force him to, and when it's a whole big family thing going. But um, but he, you know he, he it's clear he'd rather be doing something else. Yeah. Um, but but at least you know they're willing to try it, and and I'm you know I just like seeing you know what they're into. Is it weird being a dad screaming at your kid? You will have fun. You will ride a motorcycle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I would have, you know, I would have loved for that opportunity. But, you know, I had when I was that age, I had dirt bike posters all over the the walls. And, and you know, I had, you know, and I, I had no means of ever, you know, getting one. But, um, but I, I, you know, I, I was like that. So I don't get they you know, they've got dirt bikes sitting right down in the garage. And, and they're like, yeah, whatever, I'll just sit here and play on my phone. <laughs> right. Oh yeah. And that was something that didn't exist, uh, when I was a kid. And I'm sure when you were a kid is the cell phone, you know, we didn't have, we didn't have an app to occupy us. We had to go and, uh, you know, do something, you know, whether it was riding around and then even throwing dirt clods at a pond and then getting back on and riding back home or whatever. But yep. yeah, so that's, that's cool. That's really good. I'm going to enjoy, hopefully, you know, hopefully engaging my kids like that too. So that's, that's cool that you've kind of made it part of their lifestyle. Like I said, whether or not they know it or not, but I'm sure they'll appreciate it in a few years or, you know, when they become parents and they have to try to convince somebody, Hey, no, listen, you know, I did this when I was a kid too. This is how it works. You know, it's, it's much easier if you've, if you've uh, just known if that's all you've known, I guess is what I'm saying. Right. So, right. All right. Well, thank you, Paul. This this uh, interview, by the way, was recorded previously um, when Paul was back in Budapest. So it is uh, probably like four o'clock in the morning. I see he's putting on his club clothes to go out <laughs> dancing. So I'm going to let him get out of here. And uh, thank you for contributing to the parent episode. My pleasure. It was, it was right. happy to do it. All righty. Thank you. We'll talk to you later. All right. Well, hey, that was Paul. And I believe he just returned from Budapest just recently, like maybe today or yesterday. All right. Well, our last guest is somebody who's actually been featured in Rad Dad's blog and has contributed, I think, to multiple resources about being a parent and being a biker and being a builder. Yes, it's Scott Jones from Noise Cycles is the last person, and you may remember some of the parenting highlights from his interview, but if not, here's a recap. How did you get your start in motorcycling? 
Um, just basically growing up, you know, my dad was always into motorcycles. I've he's had me on his bike, you know, with a leather belt strapped around us both, riding since I was two. So, um, and my mom, you know, they split up. My mom kind of kept it going. I, you know, spent most of my childhood years with her, and uh, you know, she would always just take me to dealerships when we had to, when we passed one, like, hey, let's go check it out. And I'm like, you know, hog heaven for me. Like, you know, it's all stock motorcycles, but I thought it was the best thing on earth. Um, just always, you know, always, always hearing one while we're driving, coming up, you know, and I, you know, get the chills when I was little, you know, just thought it was the most, the best thing ever, you know. Um, got my first dirt bike. In sixth grade, actually, uh, KX80. And just I lived out in the country, so it was, you know, we had some land, built a little track behind the house, going through the woods, you know, racing cars through fields and whatnot. Um, you know, pissing off all the farmers. Well, from pissing off farmers as a kid to raising a few kids of his own, let's hear how Scott handles being a family man and a successful bike builder. You know, I have a motorcycle day job also. Um, I went back to that just to, you know, got to look out for my family first and foremost. Um, but, yeah, I got to make sure those kids are are going down the right road, you know? Yeah, yeah, same. I, I understand that. I would, I would work all night if I could, and it's like that's the guy part of my brain, and then the dad kicks in. It's like I would much rather hang with the kids right now, and they – are going to come first in the next few years. So, yeah, I, I could totally respect that. It's actually some ace parenting. Uh, well, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not one to follow in that category, but, you know, I try my best. And, um, yeah, it, it's fun. It's a lot of work, you know. It's, you know, I'm trying to juggle all these different things, like trying to be a dad, trying to be a husband, trying to have a nice home for them, um, and also trying to blow minds with motorcycles, you know? Like, that's my main, I want to blow minds, and I want them to be, and, and be with me, you know? All right, everybody, well, that's been our show. I'm not going to go ahead and give my own advice, since, you know, I'll probably ruin it for you. <laughs> At any rate, I hope you've enjoyed the show this week. Uh, sorry for the blather in there in the center. And if you want to get in touch with the show, uh, write us at creative writing podcast at gmail.com. Give us a rating in iTunes, also Google Play, and anywhere else that you find this podcast. Go ahead and give us a rev- review or a rating. You can also send emails to creative writing podcast at gmail.com. That's all one great, fabulous word. Uh, check us out on Facebook and Twitter at creative underscore writer. And, uh, you know, yeah, that's great. Huh? Okay. Hope you have a good show. Bye. Creative Writing and its associates would like to apologize to the following motorcycles. Yo, mama. Yo, daddy. Yo, greasy granny. Or if you've ever seen the, mm, um, but feel free to use it. I'll put it on Creative Commons. What a rabbit! Why do I keep doing that? What the-
the hell? A rough... <laughs> Who likes it rough? Before you go and pat yourself on the back and award yourself the largest medal available at your local metal store. I have no idea. I'm just I'm talking trash right now. At any rate, what's it called? Um uh I I don't know where they get their information from. I'm going to edit this part out. Who wants to hear me say that? Yes, I do. That's exactly. I mean the guy that races on the track. How hard it is to be a, a parent and a biker sometimes, you know, you're conflicted and <laughs> yeah. You want to you want to hang with the family but you also want to spend thousands of dollars on motorcycles. So That's right, exactly. 